Amen. You know, every year, 10 million people on the earth uh, die from cancer. Did you know that? 10 million people. It's the second leading cause of death. I think the first is cardiovascular disease. Cancer kills a lot of people. And I did a little bit of digging this week just out of curiosity, like what is cancer and, and, and why, does it, um, why does it kill you? What I learned is that cancer, this is the definition I found, it, it is an uncontrolled, abnormal growth of cells. So what that means is it's, it's alien to your body. It's, it's, it's a substance that, that grows within your body that is not meant to be there. It doesn't benefit your body in any way. And what happens is it begins to steal the natural resources of your body that your, your organs need. And then it grows to the point where it actually begins to stop your other organs, which kills you. So, so the cancer is this, this foreign thing, and it, and it goes unnoticed and undiagnosed for a lot of years, and that's part of what makes it so deadly, right? And that's part of why we get cancer screenings, particularly at certain ages and things, right? But, but it it's, it's sort of sits under the surface a lot of times going unnoticed until we start to see symptoms. And um, unfortunately, sometimes it's, it's caught too late. Like my, my dad, a couple years ago, he, he didn't even know he had cancer. He found out he had cancer, and then he was gone in two years because it, it just had progressed so far that it had could spread throughout his whole body. So cancer is deadly, um, but as deadly as it is, it's not the most deadly reality uh, for human beings. There's a more deadly reality. And that more deadly reality is not cancer, it's pride. Pride kills. Pride is deadly, it's dangerous, it's concerning. Why is pride dangerous? Well, it's kind of dangerous for the same reason that actually that um, the cancer is. First of all, pride, like cancer, is a foreign agent. It doesn't belong in our, our life. It doesn't do any good for us. It doesn't actually benefit us in any way. What pride is, is, is it's an inflated reality. Inflated, like, like, like it's, it's, it presents itself as bigger than it is. It, it, it's bigger than the substance that it actually represents. Uh, it's built on delusion. I want you to remember that. Pride is built on delusion. It's It's inflation. So like cancer, it, it doesn't really have a good place in our life. It's like an autoimmune disease. It causes us to start to attack our own well-being because it, it clouds our ability to see things clearly. Pride is, is like cancer in that it's never static or benign. It's always either growing or decreasing, right? And pride, uh, it, it increases and it feeds off the resources that should be going to other parts of our life. Because it's rooted in a lie, we have, to, we have to keep feeding it to keep that delusion alive, right? So if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you've lived your life trying to prove that you are something or someone that you're not, you have to keep feeding that lie to keep, to keep living up to this idea that you've created. Pride keeps you from, it's deadly because it keeps you from the source of life. Pride is a precursor to unbelief. And unbelief is the only sin that cannot be forgiven because it's a rejection of the grace and forgiveness of God. Pride says, I don't need God. Pride says, I got this. I don't need to be saved. I don't need to be redeemed. I don't need to be changed or helped or worked on. I, I in of myself am sufficient. That's what pride says. It blocks us from God's grace. It's deadly, like cancer. And the problem is the real fear about Pride, like cancer, is we don't know how much of it is within us until sometimes it's too late. So we need regular screenings. And that's kind of my hope this morning, is that this would be a screening for you. At the end, I'm going to give you some real practical ways to kind of think about how much pride might there be in me. And I'm just going to, spoiler alert, I'm going to give you the whole point of the sermon right here, if you want to write it down. The antidote to pride is not humility. The opposite of pride is humility. The antidote to pride is clarity regarding God's supremacy, okay? The antidote to pride is not humility, it is clarity regarding God's supremacy. And the cure to pride is not to assault it, rather the cure to pride is to starve its resources by redirecting it to worship in faith. Humility is not, listen, humility is not pushing yourself down Humility is pushing yourself out of the way so that you can see God more clearly and more accurately. Maybe you've heard this catchy phrase before, 
Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. Okay, that's what humility is. It's not about degrading myself and hating myself and pushing myself uh, down into the ground. It's about getting out of the way so I can see that life is not about myself, that there's a greater and a truer reality than me, and that what makes me valuable is actually not in, something intrinsic within me. It's the one who loves me, okay? So humility is not seeing yourself negatively. It is seeing yourself correctly through God's vision of you. So the believer is mature when the believer sees God accurately and therefore sees self accurately. And we'll never see self accurately until we see God accurately. There's an order, a progression of that. So why does all this matter? Well, it matters because in our text, we're dealing with a, or God, I should say, is dealing with a man who has uh, got a severe case of the pride, of the cancer of pride. And God, like a, a good physician, the good physician that he is, is surgically trying to remove this pride from the heart of Nebuchadnezzar without losing the patient. And that's what cancer treatment is, right? It's how much damage has to be done to the other organs of the body and, and the rest of the body in order to kill this disease that will ultimately lead you to perish. And that's what God, the great physician, is trying to do with Nebuchadnezzar. It's what he's trying to do with all of us, actually, because he's loving. And so sometimes God has to introduce radiation, if you will. The scalpel of heaven has to make precise cuts to try to pull this thing away. And then what we know about cancer, right, is it can keep coming back. So sometimes it has to continually be cut. So Nebuchadnezzar, God is, is graciously trying to save him from his own ego, his own inflated view of reality, which is actually a false reality. God's x-ray vision sees right past Nebuchadnezzar's facade and his flowery apparel and his big palace with his mega army and his one world empire. Everyone's impressed with Nebuchadnezzar, especially Nebuchadnezzar. But one person is not impressed, and it's God. He's not impressed with him, but he loves him. He loves him enough to try to save him. So this chapter is about how God is going to save Nebuchadnezzar from pride. I think we actually see Nebuchadnezzar come to the Lord in this. I think he actually becomes a believer. I'm, I'm going to argue for that. Last week, we saw the first half of this chapter, chapter 4, and what, what basically happened was God revealed a vision to Nebuchadnezzar in his sleep, and the vision really disturbed him. It was very real, like most of the visions in the book of Daniel, so real uh, that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar went looking for an interpretation, and it ultimately leads him to his old friend Daniel, who had before um, unpacked visions for him and other times. The vision was this. It was of a great tree, tree that reached to the heavens and filled the whole earth. It was a beautiful tree. The tree was full of leaves and full of fruit. And because it was full of leaves and full of fruit, it created an ecosystem for all kinds of life, symbiotic life that came to live within the branches of the trees, birds and animals. This is a beautiful, glorious sight. And of course, this uh, reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar in his kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. Okay? With this, this was this great kingdom. And for all of its flaws, it did for, time, for a time. It created a place of peace for people to dwell and live within uh, because of the power that was given to Nebuchadnezzar. But the vision takes a dark turn. Someone called the Watcher comes from heaven, usurping a higher authority than Nebuchadnezzar. See, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the highest authority in all the world. Turns out there's a higher authority. And so the Watcher comes as a representation of God, and he declares that the tree is to be cut down and that the leaves are to be stripped, it's to be humiliated. And then the stump is to be bound with some kind of a, a, a metallic band that's going to protect it for a time. And then, and then this stump is going to sort of turn to insanity. It's going to become like a beast, right? But at the, end, at the end of this thing, it can be restored. So that's the vision. What does it mean? What's going on? Nebuchadnezzar goes looking for answers, and Daniel interprets the answer for him. And we learned last week that this tree refers to him. And it refers to the fact that if he doesn't repent, which, again, repent means change your mind. If he doesn't change his mind and begin to consider God and God's sovereignty over his empire, if he doesn't plug into the ultimate power source of God rather than himself, then he's going to perish. But if he does, God will restore the kingdom to him. So we left at this very pivotal climax in the narrative where we don't know yet what Nebuchadnezzar's going to do. Is he going to listen? God sent a witness. God sent a word. He sent a vision. He sent Daniel to be that faithful witness to help him understand what God was going to do. But what will, what will Nebuchadnezzar 
do? Will he respond in humility? Will he repent? Well, that's what we're going to find out in our text today. Let me give you a quick outline of our passage. We're going to finish chapter 4, and it breaks into four nice parts. If you want to write them down in your outline, I left uh, a couple blanks there for you. First, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's condition. And that's uh, verse 28 and 30 through 30. Then we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's prescription. And that's uh, uh, 31 through 33. We're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's revelation. And that's, uh, yeah, you can see on your page, 34 and 35. And then we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. So that's just going to be a little bit of outline structure for the text. Let's work through those four sections. So, again, remember, we're at this very critical climax point of the story. What's Nebuchadnezzar going to choose? Is he going to repent? Is he going to take seriously the vision that's been given to him? Or is he going to reject it and just keep going on business as usual? Well, Let's see what the narrative says. Verse 28, chapter 4. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, meaning all of the things in the vision. And here's why. Verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? What do you think, guys? Did he get it? It's dripping with pride, isn't it? Ego, inflation. So it's been 12 months since this vision happened, and I think that that's meant to be noticed by us. There's a reason I think God didn't give Nebuchadnezzar this vision and send his boy Daniel in to make it clear and and to sort of be the prophetic voice and then the pressure's on and then to see if Nebuchadnezzar repents. He waits 12 months until the pressure is off. Because see, God doesn't want us to simply repent when we're in a nicely dark room and there's a fog machine and there's pads in the background and some charismatic speakers up there saying, I see that hand, I see that hand. Who wants to get saved right now? And like, okay, you know, you get in the moment, but then all of a sudden, you know, two weeks go by and you're like, I don't know, I like sin. Jesus, uh, they seemed pretty cool when the room was dark. It seemed pretty cool when all my friends were doing it. But now, I mean, guys... I went to camp every year, man, and I saw kids every year that we get caught up in an emotional moment. They feel some pressure, maybe a little bit of guilt tar in the background, a little cry tar, you know, some stuff happening where you're like, the tears are flowing, my friends are all repenting, I want to get, I want to get saved, and you do it, right? And then, but the reality is you're just feeling a little bit of pressure. You haven't actually done what Jesus said to do, which is to sit down and count the cost. Sit down with your ledger. Sit down and look at your value system and say, what do I really care about? Do I really love Jesus? Do I really want to follow Jesus? Or am I just caught up in a moment? God doesn't want shallow repentance out of Nebuchadnezzar. He wants true, authentic, deep, heartfelt, life-changing repentance. So he waits 12 months until the pressure is off and the true value system of Nebuchadnezzar rises to the surface. And guess what Nebuchadnezzar still really loves? Himself. Guess who his God still is? Nebuchadnezzar. And it took 12 months to surface that. Okay? So God's not just interested in getting converts on a book. So he can say, look what I did. God's interested in real life change. And he wants to see if he can really make some change happen in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Okay? So that's kind of what happens here. So Nebuchadnezzar pours his imported single-origin coffee into his $5,000 custom-made gold mug, wearing his $50,000 silk custom robe, and he puts on his, you know, baby seal slippers. <laughs> what, too far? And he walks out into his glorious patio in his suite with his, his palace behind him. And he has the perfect view of all of his construction and all of his work and all of his glory and all of his kingdom. And as he sips his coffee, he goes, man, I'm really something. Look at what I made. That's what he does. Now, what's, where, where's the sin in this? Because actually, you know, God did the same thing, and God made us in his image, right? God made something cool. It's called the world. Made it in six days. And then God did the same thing. He stepped back and he went, this is good, right? So it's not bad, actually, to make something cool. You guys ever made something cool? And then you, like, step back and go, that's pretty good. That's not wrong. Like, that's not wrong. It's, it's, it's actually the, the climax of enjoyment, 
to sit back. But, but where it goes wrong is when we stop short of the next step. The next step is when we stop, we don't go further than delighting onto the next step, which is acknowledging and worshiping. The problem with Nebuchadnezzar here is his delusion is that this is great, look what I made, and God had no part of it. But of course, that's not the reality. It's not the reality, and that's where it becomes deadly. That's where it becomes pride. So my point just being, it's okay to rejoice in things that you make as long as it ultimately terminates in you giving God the glory and the credit and realizing that you're just a creature. And even if you made stuff, you made stuff with the stuff he made. You understand that? It's all his stuff. And even if you have a really sharp brain that can make stuff, where do you think you got that brain? Who do you think it's modeled after, right? Even the air in your lungs. I mean, can you imagine how God looks at the arrogance of man? <laughs> he just goes, you guys think you're something. Every breath that Christ rejecting bloodthirsty atheists that are, that are cursing the name of God, every breath that they take is a gift of God. Richard Dawkins is just sitting there like, like pouring, spewing hatred for the Christian God. God's like, yeah, that breath that you took to say those words, God gave him that breath. I mean, it's all his. It's all God's resources. So Nebuchadnezzar's condition, what is it? You can write it down. It's inflation slash self-obsession. That's pride. Inflation slash self-obsession. That's Nebuchadnezzar's condition. Now let's talk about Nebuchadnezzar's prescription. God, the great physician, looks at him and he goes, okay, I need to prescribe some things here to try to deal with this pride. 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, <laughs> after he even got through the sentence, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men. Now, here's what's going to happen to him. Your dwelling shall be the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And it gives it to whom he will. So what's God trying to accomplish here? And Nebuchadnezzar is trying to teach him who really is running the show. And he's trying to show him that God is the source, that his kingdom is higher and above the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled among or against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. He lost his mind. So what's the prescription here for Nebuchadnezzar? There's three things that you can write down. The first is prescription number one is humiliation slash defamation. Humiliation slash defamation. That's the first prescription of God for Nebuchadnezzar. I, I, I quoted it last week. My friend Rick Boya always says that the key to humility is humiliation. That's true. <laughs> okay? The, the true, it's, it's true. The key to humility is humiliation. God's stripping the leaves from Nebuchadnezzar like he said he would. The leaves refer to the glory of this man. And I guarantee that the PR budget, you know, when you get profit and loss at the end of the year and you look at the budget and, uh, and you know, the, the, the support staff of Nebuchadnezzar is looking at the P&L sheets, they're like, man, you spent a lot of money on, on public relations this year. Like, your social media campaign was huge. Like, how much money do you really need on parades, Nebuchadnezzar? Like, it's safe to say from history, this guy thought a lot about, spent a lot of time thinking about his personal image. He was very invested in making sure that he looked like the man at all times. You would not have caught this guy in his underwear, right? You would have not caught this guy without the best clothes on, the largest entourage around, and the most important people always looking for opportunities to flex his military might. His image was dialed. And what's the first thing God has to do to eliminate the cancer in his life? He's got to strip him down to the wires. He's got to take the casing any of you guys ever tried to, you're an electrician, you ever tried to take apart a wire, you got, you got to you clip the right one, you got to take the casing off and get into the real meat of the thing. God is stripping the casing off of Nebuchadnezzar. He's humiliating him, not to be cruel, not to be mean, but in order to actually get at the reality of this man's sickness. He's got to do it. The pride, for pride to die, its hiding place has to first be exposed. It's like mold. Right? Like if you want mold to die, you got to take whatever is keeping the sun and the air away from it. 
and then let it dry. Remember last year, I piled up a bunch of leaves and then I forgot about them. And then it rained and it rained and it rained and it created these layers of mold. And, this, and, I, and so in order to get my lawn to dry out, I had to like peel all these layers of leaves so that the air and the sun could get into it. God has to do this because see what we do is we create this shell around our ego. We, we create this shell, this armor, and it's called image. We present this image that, that allows our pride to remain intact. And what God lovingly does at times is he strips back our pride so that he can heal us. It's just popped into my mind. I'm just thinking of the moment where Peter had to fail. Remember that? Where Peter, who was so confident in Peter, rejected Christ three times. And the reason was because God was trying to shake Peter's confidence in Peter. He was trying to pull back this, this image that Peter was holding onto, that he was the disciple that would never fail. So failure, God uses it in many ways. So the first thing he does is he strips back the wires, he strips back the casing in order to get at the pride and insecurity of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, pride and insecurity, by the way, are two sides of the same coin. We think pride, we just think like, you know, I think I'm the man, but the person who's, who's sort of um, self-deprecating all the time, putting themselves down, they're just as prideful. They're just as prideful. It's, it's, it's all about them. But instead of praising themselves, they put themselves down so that you praise them, right? They, they lead you into those little, like, compliments. Like, oh, I really just, I was terrible at that yesterday. Oh, no, you were so good. No, no, I was terrible. <laughs> it's like the Eeyore syndrome, right? Like, it's still pride. You just want others to, to, to elevate you, and you're not going to elevate yourself. Two sides of the same coin. The most gracious thing God can do is to expose us so that he can begin to heal us and free us. And guys, let me just say, we live in a culture where it is very, very easy to spend a lot of energy trying to build an image so that you don't ever actually have to deal with your pride. So that you don't ever actually have to let the rot and the mold of your own problems heal. Because man, I post really good posts on Insta with really good filters, right? And, and, and my family pictures are awesome. And I just don't let people see these parts of my life. Well, guess what? At some point, that stuff's going to come out. And either you can heal and let God heal you, or it's going to be really painful. Second thing, the second uh, prescription is, is not only humiliation and, and defamation, but it's alienation. Look at verse 33. It says, he was driven from men. So part of this prescription is that God removes Nebuchadnezzar from meaningful community. He no longer has the ability to have meaningful community. You know, false and shallow human relationships um, really can inhibit and prevent us from humility. You just sort of surround yourself with people that don't really know you and just tell you what you want to hear. Watch out for that. The eventual, the reality is God's speeding up the process here because the eventual outcome of pride is isolation. Any of you guys ever had to try, try to have a relationship with someone that was extremely prideful? What you find out is that there's only enough love for one person in that relationship, and the thing they love the most is themselves. So they can never really love you, right? I mean, that's, that's the reality. So, so the, 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 the thing that we're learning about Nebuchadnezzar is that what he really loves is himself, and so God says, cool, let's see how you do with only yourself. Take all your relationships away. And that's where pride leads. Pride leads to a place where you're alone. Because you can't really love anybody. You just love yourself too much. All your, all your bandwidth is, is spent loving self, thinking about self, praising self. The third prescription is delusion. Delusion. Nebuchadnezzar is driven mad with some kind of a temporary mental disorder. He no longer has the clarity to adjudicate reality from delusion. He no longer has the ability to see what really is and why things are the way they are. And so he, he begins to act like a beast. Um, now, doctors have taken a swing at this. There are certain, um, you know, clinical things that, that this seems to represent, people thinking that they're animals in some kind of a way. Um, but I do want to say this, by the way, mental illness is a reality, and it's a reality that many of us deal with. And it is not always some kind of judgment from God. You understand me? Okay? It's a reality of living in a fallen world. Okay? And many of us are victims to that. 
victims to the mental illness uh, that, that we all maybe have to deal with in one way or another. But in this particular case, God is allowing the mental illness to be a parable or an illustration of the state that Nebuchadnezzar was already in. I would, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist, I, I'm, I'm not a neurologist. I'm just, I'm just saying, here's what I understand mental illness to be. I understand mental illness to be, um, I wrote it down because I wanted to get it right. The inability to interpret reality correctly. Okay? For the most part, does that, satis- does that satisfy? Like, it's, it's, so mental illness is I can't interpret reality correctly. I'm getting false realities. Programs are getting sent back into my brain that's causing me to react wrong. So uh, in the extreme cases, somebody on the street corner screaming at cars, what's going on? They're interpreting reality wrong. I don't know what's going on in their mind, but, but they're in another world. They're talking to somebody, they're muttering to themselves, they're cursing at someone, they're interacting, maybe they're having a fight from, from something that happened in the past. There's a mental disconnect. So if that's mental illness, the reality is there, now, now hear me, the most uh, severe mental illness any human can have would be the rejection of God's authority. Because, listen, it's completely inconsistent with reality. So the craziest person in the world is not the person yelling at cars. The craziest person in the world is the person completely rejecting the authority of God the creator. Because that is literally the opposite of reality. So what is God doing here by, by, by releasing a mental illness like this on Nebuchadnezzar, he's letting him become what he already was. He's mentally sick because he thinks he's God. Have you ever noticed, by the way, dealing with people that have mental illness, how often they say they're Jesus? I've experienced it so much. It's so strange. So many times they say they're Jesus. And it's, it's like I think that the, the most severe mental illness is to think that you are somehow God. So he gives him humiliation, a dose of alienation, and a dose of delusion. So what? Well, pride makes us beasts, doesn't it? Pride keeps us from meaningful relationships. Pride keeps us trapped in secrecy. Pride keeps us from God. Now, God is not creating these characteristics in Nebuchadnezzar. He's releasing them to expose the cancer of his pride already. Now, remember in the beginning I said that the antidote to pride is not humility, right? The antidote to pride is clarity, the clarity of God's supremacy. Are you with me? So I want you to see what happens in the narrative here. God breaks down Nebuchadnezzar, but it's not in the breaking down of Nebuchadnezzar that he becomes clear. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was humiliated and my reason returned to me. What does he say? He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, turned my eyes to heaven. Then my reason returned to me. The antidote to pride is not humility. It is clarity regarding God's supremacy. The reason his clarity came back was because he put his eyes on the God of the universe, who is ultimate reality. And the clarity came. Now, it took the stripping back of his pride to get him there. But once he got out of his own way and he saw things the way they really were, who do you think he saw? He saw God. You'll never have more clarity than when you're looking God right in the eyes. You ever climb some big mountain, look at some big view, and all of a sudden you feel this clarity? It's because you're, you're close in that moment to understanding the magnitude of God's creation and the magnitude of God's glory. And you, for a moment, you go, wow, I'm really small. And there's actually, as, as, as terrifying as that feeling is, it's kind of comforting. Like, I am really small. But the God who made this sees me, knows me, loved me, died for me. All begins to make sense in that moment. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar does. He steps back and he goes, oh, I see you now, God. I see you. It's what happened in Luke chapter 11 when the 10 lepers All of them were healed physically, yet only one of them turned around to give thanks to Christ. Only one of them actually put their eyes on Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Only one of them were made whole. Only one of them left made whole. It's the same thing in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah beholds the Lord, right? He instantly has clarity because he's seeing God correctly. So, 
There are no answers on the lateral. Did you know that? Only in the vertical. Most of the people in the world are looking on the lateral. They're looking on, on the horizontal, uh, trying to find truth. And there is no truth that makes any sense apart from getting your eyes on God. Why? Because all things came from God and all things are going to God. It's the only way things make sense is if we get our eyes on the Lord. What's it going to take for you to have clarity? It took Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the day, so however long that was, probably seven years. It took him seven years, a seven-year dose of chemotherapy to get him to stop looking at himself and tune into ultimate reality. So where are you at? What's God going to have to do in you today, this week, in me? to strip back our casing. Even, a, even as Christians, we're still struggling with this, right? Now, the immediate result of clear vision is always worshipful declaration. Look at what happens next. He says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's some high theology for a polytheistic pagan. I think this guy's born again. I think the spirit of God is in him. I think the spirit of God is revealing truth about the attributes and the character of God. You notice his worship and his focus isn't just on what God does. It's on who God is. And just interestingly, write them down, we learned three things about God's nature from Nebuchadnezzar. First thing we learned about, or first thing we learn about God's nature here is that God's existence transcends chronology. God's existence transcends chronology. You can write that down. We see it here uh, in, in what he just said. He says, for him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. What Nebuchadnezzar is learning about God is that God's his rule, his dominion, his power, it's transcendent beyond the chronology of human, human life. He's, he's finally got the interpretation, right, of, of the statue. Remember that? Remember the statue and, and the stone that comes and, and, and begins to take over the whole statue? It's the, the point is God's kingdom is going to outlive man's kingdom. He's finally learning that. And that's why God can take so long to do things. You, you ever wonder why God takes so long to do stuff? You ever wonder why it's been 2,000 plus years and he still hasn't come back? Did you know God exists outside of time? God's got plenty of time. And he prefers seemingly to do things over periods of time. God's kingdom transcends man's kingdom. Man's kingdom lives within time. God exists outside of time, but he works inside of time. The second thing we learn is that God's power usurps all authority. God's power usurps all all authority, he's 35, he says, all inhabitants, all inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. That doesn't mean God doesn't care about the inhabitants of the earth. It means God is way bigger. His kingdom is way broader than even just the physical dimension that we live in. Do you understand that? God's the king of the physical dimension and the metaph metaphysical dimension. He's the king of the physical and the spiritual He's the king, not just uh, in our gospel fluency class last Thursday. We, we talked about this, you know, like, what did God create? We create the cosmos. True. Yeah. He created humans. Yeah. He created animals. What else did God create? Angels, principalities, powers. God made it all. All things except God himself are created by God. And he has power over all of it, authority over all of it. Nebuchadnezzar's realizing this. The third thing, and this is cool, God's character defines morality. God's character defines morality. Look, he says, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, nobody can go to God and say, I'm taking you to the Supreme Court. God is the Supreme Court. Do you understand that? And did you know that God, there are things God can't do? What can God not do? Anything that offends his own nature. Because God's nature is ultimate reality. It's the highest court. God cannot lie, as you guys just pointed out, because God's not a liar, <laughs> right? God cannot sin because God's not a sinner. God cannot create evil because God is not evil. Evil is the absence of God. He's bound by his own nature. The highest court in all of created reality is God. These are some pretty big thoughts for Neb, right? Good job, buddy. Good job. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 36. At the same time, now we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. 
you're taking notes. Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. How interesting. My counselors and my lords, they sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still, more greatness was added to me. What does this teach us? It teaches us that God was not trying to strip back Nebuchadnezzar to pick on him. He was trying to free him. Any more than, than the, the, the doctor is trying to cut open a patient just to cut open a patient. He's trying to get out of cancer. God has no problem with Nebuchadnezzar having an empire, having a kingdom, having power, having influence, having comfort. God just doesn't want those things to have him. Do you know there's a difference? God's okay with you being comfortable. God's okay with you having money. God's okay with you having power. God's okay with you having all kinds of things. He just doesn't want those things to have you. So he has to free you from the grips of your idolatry, getting your worship right so you can get yourself right. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. It doesn't mean we will be wealthy and healthy and prosperous, not in this age. But it does mean that God has no problem with you being healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. He just wants you to get your worship right, putting him at the center of the universe. That's what matters because he is at the center of the universe. So his authority was returned, his glory was restored, his kingdom and constituency were reunited, and his kingdom even expanded. God even gave him more than he had before. Isn't that cool? Guys, we serve a really kind God. We do. So let's try to get practical. Oh, wait, got to finish the text. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble pretty cool let's get practical pride is like a cancer right like i said and because it's a cancer and sometimes asymptomatic that means we need regular cancer screenings okay so let's do a cancer screening cancer of pride pride as we have defined it is a failure to see god and self correctly. So let's see some ways that we might be seeing God and self incorrectly. Let me give you five symptoms of pride. I'm a prideful man. So I get, I'm qualified to instruct you on what pride looks like. <laughs> Brian's my best friend, so he knows. Yeah. If you want to know how prideful I am, talk to Brian and Mike. We were roommates in college. They know. Yeah, they know it all. Okay. Five symptoms of pride. Just, just consider these, okay? Number one. This might be you. You constantly feel the need to communicate and clarify what you do and what makes you a valuable contributor and a proprietary operator. Does that resonate with anybody? You find yourself in a room of people that you respect and they ask you, what do you do? And you feel the need to really make sure they understand that what you do is pretty important. You ever in a room where someone introduces you incorrectly? You ever feel the urge to correct them? I was, at a, I was at a thing the other day where nobody knew me, and this gal that doesn't go to church, she's like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a pastor. And she was like, oh, cool, youth pastor, huh? And I was like. <laughs> I, I'm youthful. <laughs> and I pastor. I was really good friends with another pastor in town. I thought we were kind of had a peer-to-peer relationship years ago. And then I, I was at a thing with him, and he introduced me as his student. And I was like, pride. I was like, student, bro, what? Thought we were homies, man, what? Like, student, okay. Like, so those are, those are moments where you're like, oh, I'm prideful, right? Somebody, somebody demeans what you do or what you think you do. Um, I heard this week uh, Mark Sayers, kind of a cultural analyst who's also a pastor, he uses this term called self-creation. He says, this is one of the real issues with our culture right now. See, we, we, we went from being a, a society that, that looked for meaning and value and being part of a larger um, systems and larger, um, you know, um, what am I looking for? Institutions, to now we're a culture where we find our meaning and value in, in our individual story. We're all, we all want to be self-made, right? So, so we all want to have that entrepreneurial story. Here's rags to riches. Here's how I started my brand. Here's how I started my company, Right? And so we're all looking for that, and we have the ability to do that by social media now. So, so we're all spinning out. And I, I heard someone say this week, too, I thought this was clever. The problem with the self-made man or woman is that we tend to worship our creator. Right? I also remember this catchy phrase, you never know if you're a servant until someone treats you like one. Put that one in your bank. That's a good one. 
okay? So, so the reality is if we're, if we're trying to build our own little brand and our own little empire, you're going to notice that you're going to start becoming really protective over it. You start flinching when people say something, you, you need to watch out. Somebody introduces you wrong or, 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 you know, calls, puts the word little before whatever you do, like, how's your little business going, you know? You're like, do you know how much we made last year? Watch out for that. I think this is the reason that God went after Neb's image. Like, I think this is why God specifically went after Nebuchadnezzar's image, because he knew that the cancer was just so covered in layers of his own pride about how he was perceived. I think that the real God of Nebuchadnezzar really was the way he was perceived. And, and I think it was one of the things God had to get rid of. So, so may God be gracious enough sometimes to remove our image so that he can actually deal with our hearts. Okay, now if I see God correctly, then I see my value is not in what I can produce, but in what he's produced for me. So therefore, I don't care how I get introduced to the thing. Because I, I, that's just not how, what's what gives me value. I, I am who I am because I am loved, not because of who I am intrinsically. That's the Christian. That's the Christian should be thinking that way. The second thing, second symptom of pride is that you're highly critical and cynical of other people. You know, and, and for some reason, like, we think it's okay as long as it's people that are on TV. <laughs> You know, we would never say some of the things we say to people that we say to people about people on TV. Um, the compulsion to pull others down reveals an insecurity and a, an inflated ego that feels like we should be elevated. So rather than me trying to rise up, I'm just going to pull everyone else down, which makes me feel better about myself. But if we see God correctly, then I'll see myself correctly and I'll have grace for others because I'll realize I have those same flaws in myself, right? Number three. Uh, how about this one? When someone is talking, all you can think about is what you want to say and what you think you could teach them. Um, yeah. If I see God correctly, though, and I see myself correctly, then I know I don't really know a lot and I have a lot to learn. And I can learn from anybody to shut up and listen, right? I'm talking to myself, by the way. I'm not talking to you. Um, preaching to myself. Okay. Like, Sam told me to shut up today. I need counseling now. It's crazy. This is why we shouldn't trust pastors. Okay. You find yourself, uh, you, here's, here's one. Uh, you, finally, you find yourself constantly saying yes to things that you don't really want to be doing and would not be doing if there was not a social cost. Anybody resonate with that one? Here's, here's why that's pride. The reason that's pride, and I wrote this down in your notes because I wanted you to take this home. It re, it's pride because it reveals a love of self over others. Because what you really love is not people. You love people loving, or you love people thinking that you love them. Do you see the difference? You don't love people. You love people thinking you love them. So you say yes to things that you don't want to do and that you don't even necessarily have to do because you're afraid that people might not think you love them because you love yourself. And you are at the center of your universe. You see how pride is just sneaky? We call it people-pleasing you know, people dress it up with like, oh, I'm just such a servant. I just, I just can't help but say yes to everybody because I'm such a servant. No, you love yourself. You're, you're a coward. You don't want to say no. You're afraid to say no to someone because you might disappoint them and then they might not worship you anymore and your ego will be wounded. Preaching to myself. Okay. <laughs> you catch yourself lying, fudging, or grating on a curve when someone catches you doing something wrong or unflattering. You ever catch yourself doing that? There's those little, like, exaggerations, like, no, it wasn't really that bad, you know. It wasn't, it wasn't really, yeah. Lying finds its root system in pride. You, you got to think about it. Lying and pride are so connected because pride is a lie. So for pride to survive, lying has to be part of it. So if you're prideful, you're a liar. Okay? Pride feeds on lying. Pride exists because it's inflated. Inflation is a lie. So, so in order to deal with our pride, we have to get honest. And that's why confession is such an important rhythm of the Christian life. The gospel makes it possible for us to be honest. Because the gospel says, it's not about what I do or what I don't do. It's about what Christ has done for me. My confidence is not in me. It's in Christ. It's in his gift. So I have the freedom to be honest. Instead of being enslaved in my image. That's why when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they saw that they were naked. They tried to sow fig leaves for themselves. They weren't adequate. What's the first thing God did? He made a sacrifice and he clothed them so that they would not have to feel shame. That's what Jesus did for you. You don't have to hide. 
You don't have to lie. You don't have to exaggerate. You don't have to cover up. You need to believe the gospel and see yourself as clothed, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to give you the complete seven-step guide to staying prideful. Okay? Here's the complete seven-step guide to staying prideful. I'm going to do it in three minutes. Number one, build the muscle of victimhood. If you want to stay prideful, build the muscle of victimhood. Just always assume you're a victim. Now, hear me on this caveat. You are a victim in some ways, but not in every way. You're also the perpetrator. And this is one thing our culture has taken way too far. Everyone's always a victim, right? Humility begins when you start to go, I'm a victim, yes, but I'm actually a perpetrator. I've wounded. I've hurt people. I've sinned against people. I need grace. I need the cross. I need the blood of Jesus. Victimhood insulates you from the gospel. Be careful of that. Our culture wants to tell you that everything that you do that's ever wrong is because something that's been wrong done to you. That's not true. You are a sinner by nature and by choice. You need the blood of Christ for the things that you've done to others, as well as the things that have been done unto you. The second way to, to, uh, to stay prideful is only surround yourself with people who don't challenge you or don't call you out. Our culture calls this um, eliminating toxic people from your life. See this all the time. Yeah, I just can't be around them. They're just toxic. Oh, I'm like, oh, you mean they tell you stuff you don't want to hear? I'm finding a new family. My family's judgmental. Oh, you mean they actually have an opinion about what you do? Toxic, right? You're never going to be humble unless you actually allow yourself to be around people that'll tell you the truth. And that might mean some tension in relationships. You know, there's going to be some people in this church that might say something that kind of hurts your feelings. If you leave and go somewhere else, you know, you're still going to be you, first of all. Second of all, you're never going to change. You're never going to change. And then you're just going to hate the next church even more. Like, these people don't like me either. Everyone's stupid. Like, no, there's a common denominator here. Every single church you go to, you leave upset. Like, well, maybe you're the common denominator. Okay. So I'm being a little snarky today. I'm sorry. It's been a busy week. Um, <laughs> extend a little grace to me, please. Okay. Number three, make sure you talk more than you listen. If you want to stay prideful, make sure you talk more than you listen. This is key, okay? Just don't let anybody say anything more than you say because what you have to say is the most important thing, and you know everything because you have the Internet. So um, just keep that in mind. Number four, make sure that you are doing, what you are doing stays at the center of your attention at all times. You know, just be about yourself. Be about your thing. Don't let anybody else encroach. Don't worry about other people's agendas and other people's stuff and other people's needs. You focus on you. Put on your oxygen mask, right? Okay, if you want to stay prideful, you just be about you. Number five, and this is one of the most important ones, always assume you're not prideful. Don't mess up on that one. If you mess up on that one, you're slippery slope to humility. Okay, always assume that you're not prideful. Number six, and this is a key one, don't look at Jesus... Don't look at his example or God's standard for your life. If you want to stay prideful, make sure that you don't look at the life of Christ. Because what Christ, who is, by the way, God, creator, sustainer, all glory is due and worthy, humbled himself, made himself about the needs of others. His creation gave his blood, sacrificially died an atoning death for those who did not deserve it. So don't look at Jesus don't look at his example, and don't me- do whatever you do, don't measure yourself against the standard of God's perfection. Just keep looking at people that are lamer than you. That's the key, okay? I know lamer is not the word. Um, number seven, make sure that all your self-worth, satisfaction, joy, and value are entirely wrapped up in who you are and what you can do. That's the key. You deserve the credit. Give yourself a high five. I know. Okay. So you want to know how to not be prideful, just do the opposite of everything I said. Okay? If you want to, if you want to walk in humility, don't be a victim. Claim your sin. Confess it. Bring it to the cross. You want to be humble? Surround yourself with people that are going to tell you the truth. Have friction in relationships. Don't assume friction means I'm not being accepted or loved. I'm going to go find other people. You want to have humility in your life? Make sure you listen. Just close your mouth sometimes. Something I'm not always very good at. 
Make sure, if you, if, you, if you want to be humble, again, I'm just reverse engineering this. Don't put yourself at the center of your universe. Because you're not, did you know you're not the center of the universe? Did you know that? If you take one thing home, you are not the center of the universe. Who is the center of the universe? God. Jesus. Yeah, same difference. Okay, good. Always, okay, so, so instead of always assuming you're not prideful, just kind of always assume you are. You guys willing to do something with me right now? I need to say this with me. I am prideful. Yes, you are. So am I. I'm so thankful for the blood of Jesus because the cancer of pride is always in me. And I need to, I need, there, there's actually release in just admitting that, admitting it, and then receiving the blood of Jesus Christ, which we're going to do here in a moment. I'm going to be done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, not ours. Lord, your kingdom come, not ours. Lord, I pray that the absolute sovereignty that all of heaven understands would begin to be seen in our own lives, that we would see that. God, I pray that everyone here could just take a moment and just take a deep breath. And enjoy the fact that we are not in control of the universe. That we are a fallen creature. And God, you knew that. You died for us while we were still rejecting you. You died for us while we were your enemies. You knew what you were getting into when you decided to love us. You know every flaw we have. There's nothing we can hide from you. We may be able to trick and lie to each other, Lord, but the reality is you know. But God, you have not shamed us. You've covered us like a good father. You've walked backwards into the tent with the cloak and put it over us, the righteousness of Jesus. And so right now, Lord, I pray that every believer in here would feel the peace of that reality and that every non-believer in here would feel the need to have that peace by accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior and being fused to his life. Thank you for being God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.